2: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, R. Grant Kleiser. With me today is Professor Ashley W. M. Williard. Dr. Williard is an assistant professor in the Francophone Studies program at the University of South Carolina, where she teaches courses on the French language and Francophone world, including on topics such as Atlantic slavery, disability, and early modern gender. Her new book, entitled Engendering Islands, Sexuality, Reproduction, and Violence in the Early Modern French Caribbean, focuses on 17th century French Caribbean reconstructions of masculinity and femininity that, in her words, help sustain and justify occupation, slavery, and nascent ideas of race. Dr. Williard, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I'm very much looking forward to talking about with you about this uh, extremely important monograph. So, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation to talk to you about it.
2: Of course, of course. So before delving into your arguments, uh, can you just set the scene for us? Uh, what is fundamental to understand about the historical context of the 17th century French Caribbean? Uh, and roughly in, in your book, it's roughly 1635 to
1: 1715. So a few different threads. Um that are important, I think, to, to trace and identify here. I mean, first of all, what came before. So of course, um, indigenous presence, exchange, migration, um, before European presence and on ongoing as well. And, and I especially focus on um, Kalinago, often referred to as island Caribs in my texts, but also then thinking about um, inner european competition, um, influence of Iberian models as the um, French are trying to establish their own colonies. Um, That also going on with the background of all sorts of flux and uh, developments in France um, itself. And and I'm especially interested, of course, in the kinds of conflicts and tensions and contradictions that are uh, present in France around issues of gender that then get transferred to the colonial context. So I'm thinking about the sort of contested position of women in France and how that influenced uh, colonial endeavors and how we can sort of identify the translation of those issues um, in terms of salon culture, in terms of um, women regents in power over the course of um, the 16th and 17th century. And so it's really this time in which um, women's roles are are in question, but then also the importance of masculinities and different um, different uh, models of masculinity were competing and developing along with uh, Louis XIV's court specifically. So I'm thinking about all of these sorts of influences and how then they circulate to the ambitions of um, the. French monarchy in the Caribbean, so um, specifically in their arrival in Saint-Christophe, their rivalries with the English there, um, as well as, of course, ongoing um, contestation from Kalinago there, and then soon thereafter in Guadeloupe, Martinique. Saint-Domingue, although not officially a colony until much later, certainly a place where the French were were present um, and participating in all sorts of exchange. So those are the sorts of tensions that I'm I'm bringing my questions into and. And I think it's an understudied period. So this earlier period, not because it's the beginning, um, but because it's it's a moment of flux. And um, for all of the reasons I just mentioned, um, but also because it is not a fully established uh, colonial regime, um, though it is very quickly um a place where many different people encountered each other and where um models of of slavery um certainly come to bear on the the racialization of slavery in in those caribbean colonies so um those are some some things i can say to set the stage okay, if that definitely. starts to answer your question
2: great thank you so much so obviously as you mentioned gender and ideas of gender are very important in the 17th century. But of course, race uh, and the idea of race is important too. So in this book, how exactly do you define race? Mm
1: -hmm. That's a really good question. And it's one that I'm continuing to sort of wrestle with. uh, Because it's up for debate, of course, and it's not a word that's traditionally used, traditionally, at least in uh, the field of french literary studies in which i'm I'm trained and and work it's not traditionally used i would say in um, the modern sense to talk about the early modern period and yet i think it is completely pertinent to use that term um, to talk about here for my study a broad categorization of people that is then used for oppressive purposes, for exploitation. Um, and so I do not necessarily think that race as a concept needs to be defined by innate physical characteristics, though that is the most familiar form that we that we see, um, especially 18th, 19th century. But what I'm interested in is the ways in which race here in the 17th century is so clearly a shifting, adapting concept. And I believe that that is part of what is so um, dangerous, violent about race um, and and the work that it does. And so I think it's a period where we see that um, even when race is not attached to a kind of eugenics movement that it would be later, or these very fixed categories, it still attaches to bodies in intersectional ways, um, e- even though in the text that I'm looking at, mutable traits also uh, have have uh, an influence. And so these aren't always what we would expect to call race because, you know, arguably they're linked. Some of the um, concepts that I identify as race or some of the... Um, uh, Discourses that I identify as race in the book are also very much influenced by what we now call culture, um, customs, but also um, conceptions of climate and and, um, also questions around religion and faith which arguably could change, but I still believe it's the kind of attachment then um, t- and reuse of those traditional interpretations of human difference that um, that do count as race because of the way that they were used. And that can make visible the ways in which um, race remains a shifting, slippery um, concept that is part of its power its pernicious power um to exploit and oppress um in myriad forms yeah
2: and and you and and just add on to that on on page nine you say that because of this shifting idea of race that underscores how much of a a fabrication it is and a myth that's used to protect those social hierarchies in these multiple contexts which i think is really valuable insight there too
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, the other side of it is thinking about um, race, not just as a sort of theory mm-hmm. and as a myth, but also the way in which it's used. Right. What context is it being used in? Um, in what way is um, it being deployed to uphold um, one regime or another here, the establishment of um colonialism and slavery, um, but elsewhere for other reasons. Uh,
2: So in terms of your sort of uh, overarching argument related to this, of course, uh, you say on on page one that early French uh, Caribbean reconstructions of masculinity and femininity sustained occupation, slavery and nation ideas of race, like we've just been talking about. And throughout the book, you talk about several groups of people who were subject to this evolving form of, say, stereotyping during this early French colonial process. So I was just wondering if you could kind of you could do a little bit of a rundown of these groups and how they are characterized. So in terms of African women as compared to European or French women, how did French authors and colonists characterize African versus European women over time during the 17th century?
1: Mm. It's a really important question and a really hard one to answer because there's no one answer, right? Um, and and that is part of the interest of it too, is to identify the contradictions in the different um, stereotypes, tropes that emerge in the variety of texts I look at. And so in that way, I um, I try to remain because my uh, my corpus is quite diverse. I try to remain very conscious of the kind of frameworks in which to read my text. So thinking about you know what is the presence of um, of religion here of um, Counter Reformation ecclesiastical goals versus political goals versus um, a kind of moralistic control or natural historical interpretation. And of course, you can't, I can't tease those out either. So they're all kind of overlapping and influencing each other. But, but often I see, um, all of this to say, often I see completely contradictory portraits of um, one group or another, sometimes in the same text sometimes in in very different contexts. So to talk about um, uh, African women and women of African descent in a lot of these texts is um, extremely interesting. I mean, certainly there's such important work that's been done on this question in the Anglophone world, um, of course, with Jennifer Morgan's work and and many others. um, And and to some extent, also in the Francophone world, about the the kinds of stereotypes that that were built up around women of African descent and African women in the context of slavery. I'm thinking about studies of um, slavery in the Francophone world um, that focus on enslaved women by. Um, Arlette Gautier and Bernard Mouat, and then more recently, um, Jessica Marie Johnson. And so there's definitely this tradition of identifying the different kinds of stereotypes that we see around um, African women. And then I think there's important work to be done in, a, in an intersectional lens, um, but also in a kind of placing that to understand constructions of whiteness and white femininity. So, um, you know, to answer your question more directly, um, you can see this complete range um, of, to take the most kind of potent, I think, example, uh, a kind of criminalization of enslaved women's sexuality as being, um, you know, as it's identified as a threat to social order um, in um, especially legal cases and um, correspondence with the crown associated with what is to be done uh, to essentially sustain slavery in the face of um, interracial sex and children born of um, interracial sex. And that, um, you know, of course, that gives us um, a perspective into the the sexual violence that's present there. Um, But it's often coded through this kind of criminalization of women of African descent. On the other hand, however, we have this complete opposite portrait of enslaved women in particular. And this comes up most especially in missionaries' texts, which is an extremely important part of my corpus that is so unique to the French um, uh, to the French colonial project, in, in terms of the kinds of texts written, um, and so these give us, on the other hand, this kind of several portraits of, for example, a kind of exemplary conversion of chastity that um, is very much in line with um, Catholic norms, um, where there'll be these detailed portraits of individual women. Now, we can see this as, in its own way, justifying the missionary presence and project uh, but it also gives us some really interesting examples that, that at times can be, can be interpreted as, as resistance. But all of that to say, we have both and uh, sometimes in the same text, most interestingly, I think, in the narrative texts by, by missionaries because they tend to give us more particulars, but still often deploy these um, developing racialized stereotypes. On the other hand, we have both as well, and I'm, I'm simplifying here, but we have both those portraits as well for white women, but they're used differently. Um, and they're shifting depending on context. And so this is what I was really interested in identifying, um, and delving into sort of the detailed, uh, shifting representations of white women by focusing on French women sent to the colonies for various reasons. And, um, a French scholar named Elsa Dornin identified this kind of idea of, of that contrast. Um, but I wanted to delve and she, she frames it as a kind of black women being used as a kind of whitener, a whitening force, a kind of bleaching force for white women, which she frames, um, really succinctly. And I wanted to go into the details for the 17th century Caribbean. And so that's where we see, whereas the texts and even the images, the engravings that come up about French women sent from the Hôpital Général are themselves viewed as criminal um and especially characterizes as debauché, you know, these debauched women, women of ill repute. Um, but then there's also this shift of women religious being sent to the colonies um, who insist upon a kind of chaste heroism for white women. And then as we see things evolve, it, um, there are... At the same time, not only these heroic women religious, but also um, the defense of a, a kind of chaste white French bride, uh, une fille à Marie, that uh, is to be protected um, and is um, one of the um, ways to uphold a kind of developing color line, we could say. So those things are all shifting and contradicting each other as well, but that would be to answer the question in in broad terms um, regarding opposing representations of um, women of African descent, African women um, and French women who were arriving in the colonies and then sometimes being born in the colonies. And that sort of brings up a whole other uh, set of concerns um, as well. But um, yeah, I hope that starts yeah, yeah. to answer your
2: question. Definitely. And and uh, does this process happen in a parallel format with men as well? Masculinity?
1: I think so. And I think it's an understudied question to a certain extent mm-hmm. um, to identify the role of uh, shifting ideas of, of masculinity. So to look at intersectional gender, not just around ideas of blackness and femininity, but also whiteness and masculinity. And so that's why I focused on um, Fibustier, the uh, privateers and the, again, contradictory portraits of them as both these heroic, idealized men, but also these potentially kind of savage and uh, overviolent men and, and the ways in which that concept became opposed, um, not only to men of African descent, African men, um, as well, um, but also indigenous men and indigenous women, which is another group that I, I try to, um, examine in the study. So absolutely there is a, a parallel, um, but of course, different deployment of masculine tropes that happens, um, around various groups of men and women right because masculinity and femininity don't just apply uh, to um men and women separately yeah
2: Uh, that i I will say that the it's an unexpected but welcome addition to include these privateers these filibusters or pirates however you want to describe them into a study of race in the french caribbean context because i i I don't think that that has been done uh, as much as it should be um, in terms of really examining these people uh, and the characterizations of them and how they fit into ideas of masculinity and and race uh, in this period. It's really, really fascinating uh, intervention there, I think.
1: Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, and there's been, um, I think, you know, there are, again, a really... I think that there's probably an Anglophone equivalent, but the texts around the Friboustier in French um, are just so compelling. There are these narratives and um, scholars in French literary studies have done some really excellent work on that. And, and specifically Doris Garraway, I think she defines this um, noble white savage in some of those texts. And what I was trying to do is again, bring it into this network of um, of intersectional, Shifting uh, ideas of race uh, and 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 look at that through the lens of other portraits of masculinity that were emerging at the same time in narrative text but also in colonial correspondence and legal cases legal codes
2: so you also speak often in your book about ability and disability and I'm wondering uh, you know you you you've talked about masculinity and femininity but where does sort of ability fit into your study as well
1: so this is maybe a less obvious intersectional discourse to bring into conversation with with race and gender but as my work has evolved it's become more and more clear that it's an essential component So, and I was fortunate enough to have a a reader point me in that direction, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, But to start with the idea of what is the role of conceptions of disability in the history of slavery, we can turn to recent monographs by Dia Boster, Jennifer Barclay, and Stephanie Hunt-Kennedy, who all have done studies on the Anglophone world. And, um, you know, so we can't just take what's been done um, in English-speaking contexts, mostly North America, though Hunt-Kennedy focuses on the the Caribbean in a really helpful way uh, for my study. But, um, you know, broadly speaking, the idea is that disability, is useful for understanding slavery and had a central role in um, the racialization of slavery in two ways. So one would be thinking about the kind of metaphorical deployment of um, capable bodies or incapable bodies in intersectional racist and sexist texts or representations. Um, And Yet it's also important not to just see disability as a metaphor um, and as a dispersive one, especially in the context of slavery where it was a systematically uh, debilitating order, right? And and so the injury to physical bodies and um, to minds as well Was essential. And so considering that side of things um, and more the kind of question of debility, uh, thinking about um, how, for example, Jasbir Puar has defined that this kind of idea of intentional injury but not death um, as one of the important. forces in, in slavery, both in a kind of metaphorical and material sense. And I, and I find it really useful to think about both of those sides when I'm thinking about all of this, but especially disability, um, thinking about how someone like Sammy Schalk has, has emphasized those two realms, both the material and the metaphorical when uh, talking about disability.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: castrating African and African-descended men both literally and figuratively with depicting them as sort of failed fathers or emasculated people, but also literally castrating them uh, whenever they would, sometimes castrating them when they would rebel or or flee from a plantation uh, machine. So, uh, you know, a a really interesting way that that those two ideas intersect both physical and theoretical.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes in opposite contexts, right, where you would expect um, something to be more literal is more figurative and vice, vice versa, I think. So, yeah, thanks for bringing that that example in.
2: Uh, so obviously there's so many more examples we could talk about and so much more content we could talk about, but I do want to give listeners an incentive to go out and engage Engage with this book themselves. Uh, so I, I want to move on to a, a couple of questions uh, about sort of your uh, larger questions, not not about the context, but uh, and the content, but about your process of writing this book. So, so first off, uh, what inspired you to make these arguments to write this monograph?
1: Um, you know, a long. Process, but I would say the important part of that process was this increasing interest in confronting and better understanding an oppressive past that is understudied. Um, You know, that early modern literary studies, for example, um, could do well to think more about race and colonialism. And on the other hand, contemporary Francophone studies tend to emphasize a much more modern period and could think about this early context a bit more so, um, without even getting into the, the kind of political engagement there. Um, you know, I saw in those two fields, uh, a connection to be made and a genuine curiosity I had to, as someone who had been studying 20th, 21st century Caribbean literature in French to understand the the texts from the colonial period. Um, and also sort of taking that on as a project of Um, confronting white supremacy and white privilege uh, as it's constructed in the French-speaking world, but as a way for me as a white woman to also think about um, the sorts of privileges I inherit and that are embedded in in my experience. So there's a personal level to it as well um, that felt yeah, that, that partially compelled me to, to delve into the topic. Yeah.
2: yeah. No, that's uh, extremely powerful and, and uh, uh, obviously has extreme relevance to today's, unfortunately, to today's climate. And, and so I'll, I'll ask you then, you know, do you think that there are implications of this work to present conceptions of race, gender, and ability and disability? And can this apply to context beyond the french caribbean point regime yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. um i think as i sort of alluded to earlier i think confronting the way in which race is constructed and is built up can help us see in the past, can help us see what um, ways it's built up and is a fiction in the present at the same time, considering the very real effects it has and the real um, power um, and violent implications that it it holds. And so I, I think we could take uh, uh, some of the tropes that I study and sort of see, you know, it's tricky because I don't want to say this is the same thing, especially to a North American context, but we sort of question the way in which a trope that gets deployed over and over and over gets reused to new ends. So, um, and becomes so familiar that it, Almost feels natural, right? Um, so to denaturalize racism and intersectional tropes as as much as anything, um, and and insisting on the specificity, but also the kind of repetition. Um, and yeah, so I think there it's absolutely relevant. And then there is the context of you know I I try to always think about my classroom and what's the relevance there to the sort of knowledge that i bring to my students um and i teach in a francophone studies program meaning that i teach students who are you know majors in the language and um cultures and literatures and histories of the of the francophone world so not in not in history and so it it also feels extremely important to me to be talking about the, the relevance of this history, not just for the English speaking world. Um, and also, um, not just, um, for a more recent history, right? So, um, yeah. And, and so I think the, the, the main implication of this work and of this project is sort of the decoding of of this violent history. But I think there are also moments of pushback and challenge and resistance and and these sort of strategies of disruption that also start to emerge in the project that uh, are just as important and that we can learn from just as much as well. Um, Yeah. Um, So I think, you know, these are important questions when we think about um our lived reality and political situation um in in terms of murder and in terms of uh reproductive harm and um, many of the the issues um, that plague us today i think can be informed by this deeper history where do you think this
2: work, this history, this monograph fits in with previous historical studies of the early French Caribbean?
1: I would say that the um, the first is just to focus on the earlier period, okay. right? To um, have a sustained study of the seventeenth century as a period unto itself, mm-hmm. not just as the sort of beginning of the 18th century in, in terms of the French Caribbean. Um, and in so doing, showing the sorts of specificity and, and for me, the interest is the, the flux, the shifts, the contradictions, which are particularly evident in this period, um, as well as a an ongoing investment in understanding the um, the intertwined ideas of gender race and disability here so I'm in conversation with with work as I said before on on enslaved women has been extremely important for um, me developing um, a knowledge around, Um, strategies for identifying the presence of enslaved women in the archive um, and and dealing with it in what I hope is an ethical and intentional way Mm -hmm. given the amount of of violence that surrounds this this archive so that's why again um, work in the anglophone world by someone like Jennifer Morgan or Marisa Fuentes has been so influential for me in, in looking at gender um, of, of various uh, groups in, in the French Caribbean, but also work in literary studies um, on a related corpus um, by um, Michael Harrigan has, has an important work on the sorts of narratives that, that I'm looking at here. Um, and so to, to continue to make this earlier period more visible and the specificity of the, um, of the forms of gender, but also gendered violence that were taking place and taking shape. Uh,
2: and related, I would say to the contribution that this monograph gives, the voice that it gives to people who perhaps are, are voiceless, or to uh, speak more specifically about historical silences. Um, you cite, and I'm reminded in your work about the work of Rolf Trujillo, who talks about these silences in the archives, these intentional ways that people have privileged certain systems of knowledge, certain sources, uh, certain books to craft a narrative of this colonial period, this Caribbean colonial period, to serve their own purposes. And yet, how many voices and perspectives are missing because of that process? Um, There's a lot of silences in the archives, of course. A lot of enslaved people uh, are not privileged uh, in in the historical uh, archive. Uh, And so... I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and tell us how you were able to overcome such silences to write this monograph.
1: So I don't think I have overcome them. I think at some point I've pointed to them is is all that can be done. But in other senses, I think um, the you know we you're absolutely right. We don't have first person accounts by. Uh, enslaved people in the early French Caribbean. We don't. Um, And so there are, in the actual archive, there are silences, yes, but there are also presences. And I think pointing to um, the possibilities that those presences can enable um, or um, render possible uh, is... Is increasingly important to me um, and so or feels increasingly possible <laughs> to me I guess so um, you know in terms of the silences in the actual primary sources they are certainly there and they're especially there in terms of um, who is speaking for whom. On the other hand there's the other f- fact of um, the silence in the production of our narratives, right, and um, and those can be completely sorted out. But I would say the the second is is something that I um, engage with in a very different way. You know, if I think about um, you know in history and in colonial history and Atlantic history, this might not seem um, like an intervention. But the um, but in literary studies, I think that it is the idea of considering the 17th century, the reign of Louis XIV as a period of um, racism is, is a silence, right? Is, is me responding to a silence. So um, bringing, centering on the Caribbean in itself in, in a way is, Um, countering a silence, but um, certainly most of this project is centered on identifying the violence, identifying the oppressive discourses. And by the time I was done with it, that was feeling like not all the work to be done at all. Um, And so it's why I'm thinking more and more about other approaches to engaging with this work, right, um, and I, I think that it was and it is important to continue to um, confront and deal with and uh, understand better the oppressive discourses, and that and especially for the early French context, because um, the, the work is starting to be done in important ways, but it, it's it's there's a lot of work to do for understanding that, and especially you know sort of thinking about the broader um, Francophone world and specifically French Republican ideas that, um, make it very easy to deny this history, um, and especially its implications in the present, um, that is also important, but I'm thinking more and more in my current work about how do we, um, look closer and read creatively these documents to... Resolve more the the silences in the documents themselves, and I, um, in a way, there is a lot to work with, especially with something like these missionary narratives that um, give us portraits of individuals, anecdotes, detailed descriptions that um, are extremely rich, even if they're still filtered through problematic perspectives. You know, there's a responsibility, I think, there to take them seriously and continue to look for more complicated uh, and more sort of polyvocal readings of, of that.
2: Apartment. Well, s- s- speaking of more work to be done and the constant uh, need of, of uh, looking at all these sources and, and trying to figure out and, and uncover these silences, uh, what projects are on the horizon for you?
1: very graceful transition. there. (laughs) Um, So what I'm focused on now is, um, well, first of all, I'm relieved to just be able to read a lot right now. (laughs) Like I just want to (laughs) sit and read and learn right now is very much the Mm -hmm. place I'm in. And so I'm enjoying that. Um, But also, um, more specifically, the ongoing book project that I'm working on is about is about madness and mental disability. So, if this project was more focused on the um, production of a uh, racism that is very much corporeal, I'm I'm now looking at um, ideas of madness, and I'm trying to emphasize in this new project um, not only the kind of racialization uh, or of pathologies, uh, but also looking at moments where madness comes up as moments of disruption to this violence, to uh, this uh, these oppressive forces. And so that's where I'm trying to do as much reading as possible to learn about creative, ethical strategies for reading, um, the presence of, for example, enslaved people. Um, and for example, um, uh, enslaved people who were um, returned to merchants because they were deemed fou, fou, mad in French. And and so kind of revisiting these moments. So um, that that's what I'm working on now. And I'm again, trying to look at it in, um, a lens that will also be informed by ideas of um, intersectionality, and and more specifically, that will not just be centered on the construction of blackness, but also of of whiteness in relation to these issues. So, that's what I'm working on now. And in in the meantime, I'm just trying to understand a bit more um, strategies by that scholars. Have have deployed um, people like Marisa Fuentes, um, Saidia Hartman, of course, but but many others as as well. So um, that's what I'm working on right now.
2: Well, we're looking forward to engaging with that work once it's once it's finished. But uh, in no pressure, but in, in, in hopefully in the in the near future. There, um, Dr. Williard, thanks so much for your time today and for this wonderful uh, conversation. The book Engendering Island, Sexuality, Reproduction and Violence in the Early French Caribbean is out now via the University of Nebraska Press. And this is our Grant Kleiser saying thank you so much to all our listeners for tuning in and see you next time.